Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you and praise you for this day, Father. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Father, to fellowship you and enjoy fellowship with one another. Father, I pray now that everything done and said today will be to the upbuilding of your kingdom. And we give you praise and honor and glory for it in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, um, welcome, welcome. I, I start off with a joke if you don't know. Just laugh and make me feel better. So, uh, this small group of folks are walking past a, a, a cemetery. And this woman was in the middle of the cemetery and she was boo-hoo crying. Just, I can't believe you left me and I can't believe you left me with this burden. And, and just, she's just so distraught. And one of the young ladies in the group said, I'm going to go comfort her. So she walks across the cemetery to speak to the lady and says, you know, um, is there anything I can do? I'm so sorry for your loss. Was it it a loved one or a close friend? And the lady paused for a second, and she's sobbing and crying, and she said, well, actually, I I never even met her. The lady said, you you never met her, and you're, you're mourning at her grave like this? And she was like, yes, and I can't believe she left me with this burden. You know, well, who is it? So it was my husband's first wife. <clears throat> Thank y'all for laughing. I appreciate it. Huh? No. You misunderstood. If she would have been alive, he, she wouldn't have to put up with her husband. There you go. It's about the husband. All right, so... Four weeks ago, we, we, I, I came up here and boldly declared it in, not boldly, but yes, kind of, sort of. The, the biggest attendance day ever in the United States of America was the Sunday after 9-11. And today is the Sunday after 9-11. Not the same 9-11, different 9-11. But it, so I started a series talking about how flowing waters, when you're a Christian, water flows out of your spirit, right? And we have talked about every way you could have water, right? We have primed a pump. We, we have uh, tightened up the hose and created a flow. And last week we talked about seasoning the water, right? Everybody remember? Good ones, you, you just nod and that's good. So, so when we prime in the pump, we were talking about, hey, first you have to be born again to have that flowing water come out of you when the Holy Spirit moves on the inside of you. Second week, we talked about controlling the flow, how Christians allow the Bible sometimes to be used as a weapon, and I likened it to watering flowers with a fire hose, right? Sometimes tell them and tell them and tell them and tell them don't work. Sometimes you have to show them. And last week, we talked about seasoning the flow that comes out of you with those gifts of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And so this week, we're going to talk about the proper temperature, of the water. You, you know, everybody has a different temperature that they like to drink at. One of my kids, Caroline, she does not like cold water. She wants it room temperature, sometimes warmer. I swear the kid drinks hot water on a regular basis. But that is what she wants. And I could drink it like that, but I would prefer for it to have just a little bit of ice floating in the middle of it. That is really my temperature, right? Where you kind of got to chew it every once in a while. That is perfect. That is the perfect temperature of water. So, the temperature of what we're talking about, <clears throat> we're going to go to uh, the gospel according to Matthew, and you'll get it in just a second, it's really not about temperature, but I had to finish the series. The gospel according to Matthew, <clears throat> in the 22nd chapter, 
Matthew 22, 37. Oh, let's go to 34. And hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and Pharisees, got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, for this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the perfect temperature, if you have flowing water coming out of you, is love. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're doing all the right things and you don't have love. It's nothing. If you're doing all the wrong things and you don't have love, well, then obviously it's, it's still nothing. The greatest commandment that Jesus ever gave us is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that first one, you probably can sell that I do pretty good at that. I mean, if you're a born-again believer and you kind of read your Bible every once in a while and you go to church sometimes, you can say, well, I love God because, you know, you don't want to contradict that. But that second one, that second one is very difficult. Just to make sure we don't have any storytellers, does anybody in here believe that they love their neighbor like they love themselves? Okay, thank y'all. I appreciate that. I, I, I also do not believe that. But that is a, <clears throat> it's a very tough commandment, yet it's pretty simple. It's to treat people how, they, how you want to be treated. It's the golden rule, right? It, it, is, it is what we hinge society on. <clears throat> Caroline's little roommate is not from here. And uh, she doesn't enjoy our culture. Well, she does. She just is not familiar with it. And they were in traffic, and Caroline stopped and let somebody go. And she said, what are you doing? She said, I, I let them go. I, they, they needed to get in. I let them go. And she was like, huh, i never seen anybody do that before. <laughs> she's not from here. <laughs> now, she's a sweet girl, fantastic young lady. It's just different. Because when we get to the place of where we love our neighbor as ourself, as a, and, it, and this starts on so many levels, right? First, it starts on your individual level. Whether you're a parent or a child or aunt or uncle or grandparent or whatever, you have to model yourself to love your neighbor as yourself. Then you press it down into your family group that they treat their neighbor like themselves, that they love the people that are around them. And then when you can get that happening, to where your family group is loving your neighbor as yourself, then we like to call it church. On Sunday morning, we come together and we try to love on our church family like ourselves. And then, if you can really get crazy, that once the church family has got together and is really loving on each other, what happens is, is that spills over outside of the building. The problem is, is for that to happen, there are a lot of steps it's an individual step, a family step, a church step, and then it's a community step. And when we get to where we're loving our community, when we come together as a group, and see, that's what 9-11 really did, right? 9-11 shook us because all of a sudden our security that we believed that there's this big invisible wall around the United States of America that no one would dare attack inside of that, Right? I mean, that's what we believed. Before 9-11, we were like, you ain't crazy enough to fly all the way across the pond. 
And then 9-11 kind of shook that belief. And all of a sudden, people were looking for a reason to have hope, which led for all of those people then to go to church. Does the Bible say without God and without hope? So when we come together as a church, the number one resounding constant is love. I mean, the Bible says God is love. So we're going to talk about, and let me tell y'all, let me back up for just a second and go down a rabbit trail for just a second. There are never, it's really difficult to stand up here and, and tell you what I think God wants you to hear because there's not a lot of um, confirmation. You know, they don't put up billboards in town saying Robbie's doing a great job. It's just not. And it's a lot of self-doubt. I mean, I'm going to tell you, it's a lot of self-doubt. And then what I really, really like to hear is, oh, you know, so-and-so preached on the same thing you did the other day. And I'm thinking, yes, sir, he was listening too. But last week, I got a tickle. Because like I said, this has been four weeks. And from day one, I knew it was four weeks. And I knew what each Sunday was going to be. I just had it all written out in my book. And last week, Granny Crick walked in the door. And she said, I want to ask you a question. Yes, ma'am. Do you know how many times the word love is used in the Bible? And I said, actually, I do. And if you come back next Sunday, I'll tell you. So she asked me again this morning, and I told her what I'm fixing to tell y'all. It depends on the translation, but what we teach out of is mostly the NIV. It's 686 times the word love is used. Now, it's not the most popular word. The word um, Lord is used way more times, right? But the word love is used 686 times in the NIV. That's pretty impressive, right? It seemed like a pretty uh, central cause of what was going on. So if you will, turn with me to um, 1 John, little John, way, way back. <clears throat> uh, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God, <clears throat> love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we may live through him. This love, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we ought to also love one another. Exactly the same thing, right? It's exactly the greatest commandment over again. But it's an opportunity to understand the background of the salvation of the world came only out of God's love for us. I mean, think about it. Here's an all-knowing being who created the universe. On this, he built a little green ball. And in the middle of that, he put a couple of folks, and he said, I have given you dominion over everything. You have a free will, you have free choice, and all I ask you to do is don't eat from those two trees. That's a pretty good deal. Of course, what did we do as humans? We immediately went and ate from the tree. I don't know if it's immediate, but it was pretty close. 
So here is a righteous, all-knowing, sinless, perfect God. And he created humans with the opportunity for a free will. For us to choose to love him and to worship him. Not that we had to love him and worship him. Here you go. Here's the green ball. I give you dominion over it. Every animal, every fish, every bird, it's all yours. I've created it all for you. And they immediately handed it over to the devil. I would be disappointed. I would be pretty disappointed. If I spent the time, money, effort, not money, resources, effort to build something and turn it over and said, hey, it's yours. You can treat it like you want to. Just don't do that. And then we did that. So then God had a plan to how he was going to set us free back from that. Because what happened when man fell right there in the Garden of Eden, we were condemned and damned. Right? We were under the curse. All of a sudden, all of these things that we had no idea existed took place. So then God had a plan. But being this knowing, all-knowing, righteous God, after we just messed up, I really felt like, I really feel like he said, okay, time out. Let's make sure that y'all understand what's fixing to happen. So the first time that the word love is mentioned in the NIV is Genesis 22. So if you will, turn with me to Genesis 22. <clears throat> Genesis 22. It's way back in the beginning. Genesis 22, verse 2. And God said, then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him for me. Boss, I waited a hundred years to have this kid. I work, my wife will kill me. You understand? I have been, my wife was barren and we was barren and we a hundred years old and we finally got a kid and you want me to kill him? Now, the writer of Genesis really did a good job explaining that at no point in time did Abraham in this conversation go talk to Sarah about what he was fixing to do with the kid, right? There was no, no discussion point there. I just find it amazing that Abraham, the father of faith, the man God picked out of the crowd to represent him, he said, I need you to take your son and sacrifice him for me. Kind of seems like a little foreshadowing, right? That later on that God's going to send his son to sacrifice for me. So given the opportunity, I want you to take your son, the one that you love, because he had two, right? By this point in time, he had two. He, he, had, he had probably done some stuff he wasn't supposed to do, and there was a handmaid somewhere, and there was another kid. But, but the, I want the one that you love, the one, that me, the one of promise, the one that I promised you, the one that's going to be the, the father of many nations that goes through your lineage, the, the father Abraham's kid. I want that kid, and I want you to take him, and I want you to sacrifice him for me. 
Now, obviously that's a pretty difficult situation, but what did Abraham do? Abraham said, God promised me that I'm a father of many nations, and he promised me this son through Sarah, and if I take him in sacrifice, I know even if I sacrifice him, God will raise him up from the ashes. So if he was sacrificed and he was killed, then I have faith to know that God will bring him back from the dead. Man, that foreshadowing is really good. Now, I would imagine that Abraham probably did not see the foreshadowing taking place. I would think when he was faced with this choice, being a father of three, um, not only do you really, really, really love that child, you really, really, really know that your wife is really going to never forgive you ever, that if you actually take your child and sacrifice, I mean, there's no way out of this. Abraham is in bad place. But he knew that God would honor him and that God would stick by his word, and even if it killed him, that God would bring him back. So then if you flip forward to see where that foreshadowing comes back, it's that one that Tebow likes to put on his face. Gospel according to John, chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For whoever believes in him is, <clears throat> is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. That's tough. So given the opportunity, Abraham made the choice that he knew that God's word was true and God's promise to him was true. And even if I have to kill my kid, that God loves me enough that he'll bring him back. And then John explains that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for our sins and to pay for our penalty. Now, when you can come to the idea that God is not tied by time or space or matter, that he is outside of the universe looking in, that he, is, he knows the beginning and the end, that he, he understands all of what's happening around us, and you take that information and you put it in a human, right, who is, who is Christ, who is Jesus, and then you put him on the earth for 33 years, give or take, but for 30 years as a young adult and then three years, three and a half years in his ministry, him knowing that his only feet, the, the only thing he has come here to do is to die on the cross and redeem us. He is to be an example of what God-fearing, loving Christians are supposed to look like and to die on the cross to pay my penalty and your penalty. And I'm going to tell you, if you look at the sheer power of God, there is nothing that holds Christ on the cross except for the love. It ain't three nails. It ain't a bunch of Roman guards. He had legions of angels at his command. Snap his fingers and it's done. Boss, I don't want to do this. No, I don't want to be here no more. Come get me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he went before God and said, I know the plan. I know what you want me to do. I understand the task. If there's any other way, let's do it that way. But if it's not, I want your will to be done. 
Man, if we had a bunch of Christians who would get to the place and say, God, I want your will to be done. I want to do exactly what you want me to do. I want to walk in love the way you want me to walk in love. That I want to treat my neighbor the way you want me to treat my neighbor. I'm trying not to be offensive. (laughs) And I hear it resounding out of the crowd, but you don't understand, I'm nice to the people around me. I get it. I'm not talking about them. I'm not, not, look, look, look. If, if you're not even nice to the people who live in your house, you need to come up for prayer later. We have bigger fish to fry. You are not who I want spreading the gospel, okay? We need to fix the house first. Like I said, it's you and then your house, and then you come to church, and then the church, and then it goes into the street, right? That's where it's supposed to go. But, but if you feel like that God doesn't have anybody in your life that needs to hear about the love of Jesus, you really need to quit watching TV and walk outside for just a second and like stand on the steps, Or when you pump in gas, take your face out of your phone for just a second. The world is starving for God's love. We are in a situation where it is the most valuable resource on the planet. And I'm not a doomsday preacher. Y'all know me better than that. But I can Oklahoma guarantee you we one day closer to Jesus coming back today than we was yesterday. Now, I don't know if it's next week or next year or next decade or... 10,000 years from now, it ain't none of my business. I'm just telling you, you should be about making sure that the people around you have Jesus in their heart. And that if you really love somebody, and if you really love somebody, you should be that witness. We have oppor- you have opportunity to witness the people that are unique to you. They are unique to you. I don't know who cuts your grass. I don't know who the people are that you deal with. I don't know who you work with in your office. Heck, I'm not sure all of y'all even got jobs. I mean, I know a lot of y'all don't. And teenage-type folks, y'all ain't got no jobs, right? I don't know who's in the locker room with you. I don't know who's on the baseball field with you or on the soccer field with you or who goes to the same gym as you or who goes to the same pool as you or who's, who you hang out with on the lake or who you hunt with. But I'm telling you, the evangelist of today is not by putting a little scripture on Facebook, although that is, has its own thing, right? But if you're under 60, that's not your thing. You are talking to people. You are supposed to be social. We are supposed to be out in all the world spreading the gospel, the good news that Jesus died on the cross for us. The epitome of love. And then, you know, we have that conversation exactly what does that look like? What does it look like to look like love? Well, I'm glad that Paul took a few minutes to jot down some stuff, and we're going to read it in just a second, of what love really looks like. Now, love is like washing your significant other's dirty clothes. That's love, right? Love is tending to your children, and, and, and that's love. But, but let's look at what Paul says love is. Because this is it's pretty important. It's pretty important to, to know what love is. And, and I'm going to tell you, every time I feel like I can get cocky in, in how good I'm doing in God, I go read this. 
and I put my name instead of where it says love, and I get very humbled very quickly. And then I go back to doing what I'm supposed to do. So if you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. And some of y'all have heard, this, heard me say this more than once. I've heard me say it a bunch of times. I still need to hear it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to begin in verse 1. <clears throat> and yet I will show you the most excellent way. For if I speak in tongues of men and angels and do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom the mysteries and all of the knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all of my possess, that I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast and do not have love, I gain nothing. Now this is when it gets serious. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. We'll stop right there for just a second. So if you feel like you're a big, bad Christian, you go start at 1 Corinthians 13, 4, and you start reading that in the first person. Well, you could say your name, right? That's a really way to say it, right? Like, Shelly is patient. Shelly is kind. Michael does not envy, right? Philip does not boast, right? You, 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 can, you can read it how you want to read it. You put your name wherever you want to put it in there. If you can walk according to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, praise God you are doing fantastic. But everybody else, this is the goal. This is the goal. The goal is to walk in such a way that people want to compare you to what love is. Hmm. Now I'm going to tell you, when you start putting your name in there, Right? Robbie is patient, and Robbie is kind, and Robbie does not envy, and Robbie does not boast, and Robbie keeps no record of wrongdoing, and Robbie does not delight in evil. Right? You go ahead and start doing that, and be serious about it, and in your spirit will shoot up giant red flags that go, well, how about that? Well, how about that? Well, how about that other thing that you did? Remember how you treated that person? And then I go, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and then I go to my next favorite thing, right? In Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not to beat yourself about the head and neck with. This is not to beat somebody else about the, right? We talked about that the other day, right? This is not a blunt force weapon. It is not to be used to beat down people who are not living how you think they should live. In fact, I think Jesus said you should take care of the two before sticking out of your eye before you worry about a little bit of sawdust in your, in your buddy's eye. That's that's Berkeley County version of it, but you understand what I'm saying. Our goal as a church, as a Christian, as a Christian leader, as a Christian family, as a Christian parent, our goal is to walk so close with God that His love on the inside of us is bubbling up pouring on the outside of you. 
and it spills over into your family and then the family into the church and then the church into the community. And if you want to get real crazy, we'll go community to state and then worldwide. Worldwide. And we have no idea, right? We have no idea. I heard a guy speak this week and was talking to a group of people in China where it's against the law to have Bibles, right? It's against the law. And so they were talking about 1 Peter 4, and they were going back and through in a little Bible study, and they only had 15 Bibles, and there were 22 people. And one of the ladies handed her Bible off while they were doing the discussion. And it caught the guy's eye, and he said, well, what, what, what happened? And she said, oh, I know that one. What do you mean you know that one? Well, I know 1 Peter. And she began to recite the entire book of 1 Peter. And at the end of this little conference they were having, he was comparing and contrasting how we worship and how they worship and our freedoms and their lack of freedoms. And one of the people in there said, please pray for us to one day be like you. In America is what he was talking about. And the guy stopped and said, I'm not going to do it. I won't do it. And she said, well, I don't understand. And well, in America, it's free to have Bibles, and we have multiple Bibles in our home, except most people don't actually read those things. Here, it's against the law to have Bibles, and you get thrown in prison for worshiping God, yet you memorize the Bible because you say that they can't take it out of your mind, but they can take the paper from you. I pray we're more like you, not you like us. Because when we get to the bottom of where we are supposed to be, we're supposed to be so enamored with God's word that we're doing the willing to do whatever it takes for it to be on the inside of us. Because on the inside of us is what changes the outside of us. I don't remember who, what it was that we sing that song, Changes on the Inside. Somebody used to say, Changes in my wife, not life. Jesus working on the inside changes my wife. Well, it does if you do it right. If you start walking a Christian life and you start loving unconditionally and you start representing your family as Christ does the church, as a Christian husband, the more you do better, the better your whole family looks. I'm going to go to Midland. I got to stop. <clears throat> As the body of Christ, our job is to be the hands and feet of Christ. <clears throat> James talks about seeing somebody hungry or cold and telling them to go be warm and well-fed and doing nothing doesn't change anything. So as the body of Christ, our job is to show up and do what we're supposed to do and walk in God's love so that when the time arises, once the pump is primed, and the flow is right, and it's seasoned properly, that it's the perfect temperature, that when we have an opportunity to witness to somebody, that it becomes a place out of love. And I struggle with this probably more than anybody else in the building, and it's in the right tone. It's not condescending. It's, it's, it's uplifting and building up. That God's love is uplifting. That's why they call it the gospel. It's the good news. The bad news is they don't need to hear the bad news. They already know the bad news. 
The good news is, is that God loves you. And God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. For you to be set free from whatever the world has in you. That's the good news. That's our job. Good news. Good, good news. That's not what you see on 2, 4, 5, and 24. That's not good news. The good news comes from God. That he loves us. That he has sent, some, uh, sent his son to be atonement for our sins. That we have been set free from the curse. <clears throat> thank y'all for coming. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we just thank you and praise you for this opportunity. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we pray that each one of us works diligently, Father, to line up more with loving our neighbor as ourself. Father, we just give you the praise and honor and glory for it. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.